Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. I say good morning, everybody. Welcome to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Uh, If there's anybody visiting for the first time or for the first time in a long time, it's good to have you here with us. Also, if you are listening to us through our website, through our podcast, you're also welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday morning. Well, before I begin the message this morning, I have uh, an update on our building. Uh, Some of you, if you're really new to us, you may not know that we have plans to purchase this building, and we've been cooking uh, this plan and talking about this plan since the earlier parts of this year. And I would admit going into this uh, process uh, with a little uh, naivety, right? It's like we, we, we got some people, they're excited about it. We printed a book. We got some money in the bank. We're raising money. Just give me a million dollars. I mean, that, that's not hard for me, right? That's not hard for me to understand, right? Well, apparently there's a little more to it than that, right? As we found when we started engaging banks, talking to banks, they want tons of paperwork, all sorts of questions, all sorts of things. And the very first bank we started dealing with, which is BMO Harris Bank, actually they turned us down. Apparently, we didn't have enough equity and not owning a building, being a fairly young church. I mean, nine years feel like a long time to those of us who planted the church, but to a bank, they're like, well, you're still kind of a baby church. So they actually turned us down. We had to go and talk to Providence Bank in South Holland, and they seemed more encouraged and willing to work with us, but still very conservative. We had to start the paperwork process all over again. And I was a little frustrated until somebody explained to me from the bank's perspective, there's this thing called reputational risk. I don't know if you've heard that expression, but basically, no bank wants to be the bank that repossesses a church. (laughs) No bank wants to be known as the bank that set a church out on the streets. And so that causes them to be very conservative and, and to go very slow, particularly when it comes to nonprofits, particularly when it comes to churches, and even more conservative when it comes to young churches. But I'm pleased to announce today that our loan was finally approved this week. And so, of course, it's a huge load to lift it off. But the the interesting thing about this is that they approved our loan for the building purchase, but not for the remodel, which is what we were hoping. And so we have to put our heads together again to figure out what the way forward is for the remodel and if we have to secure a private loan or something like that, or if the Lord is just saying, wait, either way, in the middle of next month, our plan is to purchase this place and to begin our next chapter as a church that owns its own property, which is really game changer for us. And I'm thankful that you guys have all been a part of that. As I've stated week after week, our goal for the middle of September is to raise $200,000. Right now we've raised about $147,000, which is no small thing. But we're believing God within the next 30, 40 days to raise an additional $53,000. And we believe that uh, we can make that happen if we lean into this. And so I just want to spend a little bit of time this morning just praying for the next 30 to 40 days. Praying that the Lord would continue to open uh, the windows of heaven, to, to continue to give us favor, not just with banks and lending institutions, but people who believe in what we're doing so that they might sow into this. And so would you just join me in a word of prayer as I pray for the next few weeks? So Lord, thank you so much uh, for this tremendous opportunity. This is no small thing for us. Lord, we've seen your fingerprints all over this process. uh, And we are thankful because we know that even the doors you close are things that, those are doors that we're supposed to celebrate. Even the things that you say no to and things that 
you keep us from our blessings from you, our ways of protecting us, our ways of, uh, of, of protecting us from things that we can't see. Uh, and so, Lord, we thank you for even closed doors, but we especially thank you for, thank you for each and every penny that's come in, each and every penny that's going to continue to come in. I thank you for each and every person who's given sacrificially, who's sown into this vision with enthusiasm, who have had to say no to some of their own desires so that they might say yes to what you want to do here, Father. We thank you for that. And Father, we pray that as we press into closing, as we press into our next few decisions, Father, I pray that you would go before us and that you would make the crooked places straight, that you would open doors that we're supposed to walk through and continue to close doors that are not for us, or at least not for us right now. Bless us, Lord. Keep us. Continue to make your face to shine upon us and give us the fullest measure of your peace. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. And so, hey, early, uh, early in this week, you will be getting a sort of giving statement for the pledge that will let, sort of let you know what you pledged and where you are on those pledges. Those should be coming to your email. And so if you don't have uh, your updated email address uh, in our directory, would you just take some time this morning to fill out the Connect card, update that with your information so that we might send that out to you this week so that you know exactly where you are. Amen? Amen. Well, let me uh, begin with a message. If you've been uh, uh, tracking with us over the last several weeks, over the summer months here, you know that we're in a series that I've simply been calling, Can We All Just Get Along, right? And you know, probably know that that is just a call to peace. It's a call to civility. It's a call to unity, something that at this particular moment in our history, we need now more than ever. Amen? And so what we also understand is that if unity and peace were easy, everybody would be doing it. If unity and harmony and getting along were easy, we would not need messages like this. We can rip out entire pages of Scripture that speak about unity and harmony and oneness, uh, but we need that wisdom and instruction from heaven now more than ever. Jesus says famously in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, God blesses those who what? Work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. And what Jesus understands is that peace takes work. Unity and oneness, it takes work. You have to press into it, right? You have to deny some of your instincts in order to engage in peaceful unity with one another. And so with that in mind, I ask, can we all just get along? You might also know that each and every summer around this time, we take some time to deal with our relationships because we know that as people of purpose, uh, particularly when we look in Scripture, we see that God says our purpose is to love Him and to love other people. Our purpose is tied to relational living, being at peace with God and being at peace with other people. And so we feel each and every year that we take some concentrated, focused time, energy, and attention and point it toward our interpersonal relationships in pursuit of what we call relational wisdom or relational skill in living. And from the beginning of this series, we've jogged through a number of topics including honor, right? Starting there at honor, how to forgive, how to apologize, watching your words, how to tell the truth. Last week, we took a deep dive into the subject of marriage, and I've got some great feedback from last week. Many of you were challenged. Many of you had to go home and talk to your spouses and right some wrongs. All these things deal with our relationships. Why well, don't I continue this series this morning by talking about a subject that is very dear to my heart, a subject that is very meaningful within the context of our mission and our vision here at the South Suburban Vineyard, I want to talk about diversity. 
And I always want to reclaim diversity because it's become a bit of a buzzword in the, in the corporate world. It, it's kind of a buzzword even in the church. It's kind of a sexy thing to have diversity. Let's see how many, we need one of each, and we got to make sure the picture looks right, and we got to make sure the demographics look right, and we got to make sure that we're attractive to all sorts of people. And, and when it becomes sexy, when it comes to buzzword, it is serving the organization rather than being a missional value that like has the greater good at, at the core right? And so in a kingdom sense, when I talk about diversity, I'm not trying to make myself look good. I'm not trying to make sure we can pat ourselves on the back. I want to make sure that we are pleasing to the Lord. I want to make sure that our community and our lives and our dinner tables uh, have a picture of heavenly diversity, the picture that we see in Revelations, where every tribe and every tongue and every nation gathers around the throne and worships, right? That's what I'm talking about when I talk about diversity. Uh, within the context of getting along and being at peace, we understand that diversity is hard to come by because it requires you to love across differences. Uh, diversity at its core means different. People who think differently, people who look different, people who vote differently, people who speak differently, right? All sorts of different worldviews. And that, friends, like it's hard enough to love people who are like you. It's even more challenging. It's even more difficult to love people that are different. In fact, our instincts push against diversity. Our instincts push against different because we are preference-driven human beings. And in being preference-driven, that simply means we prefer people who share our preferences. Life is just easier that way. But if you've been blessed like I have been blessed, and the Lord has forced you into settings, and forced you into environments, and forced you into social environments where you are not the only, you know, type there, uh, as frustrating and as dizzying and as discombobulating that is to have to figure out new cultural differences and things like that, uh, those of us who have had rich experiences like me understand that we grow the most in diverse spaces. We learn the most in diverse spaces. We develop empathy in ways that we would not otherwise develop it. Our, in, our cultural uh, uh, intelligence goes up, right? Our cultural competence grows, not in silos of homogeneity, but in rich, diverse environment. It is worth, friends, the work. Let's press deeper into this. In a kingdom sense, uh, diversity, living in diverse spaces where differences abound, better prepares us to be missional people who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Say, preacher, what do you mean? Our mission is found, our primary mission is found in Matthew 28. Go into all the world and make disciples of what? All nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. You get where I'm going with this right now. If, if that scripture doesn't contain the word all, then many of us would be safe. We wouldn't have to worry about it at all, right? But our call is to all people, all nations, and you, frankly, you're not equipped to do that well if all you know is what you know. You're not equipped to see and appreciate and value and honor and see people as made in the image of God if you only know what you and your people like and love, right? 
And so in a kingdom sense, diversity isn't just some optional thing that you do if you're into that sort of thing, but rather it is a kingdom ideal that if we love Jesus and we want to lean more perfectly, more excellently into loving others and pressing into extending the kingdom of God to all people, then this diversity thing is something that we have to take more seriously. And if you're going to be a member of this church, you're not going to like it here if you don't develop and cultivate an appreciation for diversity. Uh, We won't kick anybody out, but I'm just letting you, you might not like it. Because in the kingdom of God, you might have to rub against somebody whose skin is darker than you. You might have to rub up against somebody who votes differently than you. You understand what I'm saying? It's a kingdom ideal. It's not a special interest. So in light of that, I want to talk this morning about loving well despite our differences. Loving well despite our differences. This is really important for us. And so I want to use a passage of Scripture this morning to flesh some things out. Meet me this morning in Galatians chapter 3, if you have your Bibles with you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there are Bibles on the edges of your rows. Feel free to use those Bibles uh, today to find the Scriptures. If you don't, by the way, have a Bible at home that you can understand, uh, you can take that Bible home. It's a gift from us to you. Uh, We will also be projecting uh, the Scriptures on the screens as we go along here. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 26. While you find that, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this diverse community, the blessed community we have here, Father, where people from different walks of life, different sides of the tracks, different cultural and ethnic, ethnic backgrounds, different political leanings and worldviews, Father. We, we are better together. Uh, but, Father, we know that our fallenness, our sinfulness, our brokenness, our humanity causes us to recede into places of comfort, and familiarity, robbing us of an opportunity to be schooled in this love university. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would teach us this morning. I pray that you would go before us and make our hearts soft and ready uh, to receive the things that you have to say to us, even if they prick us a little bit, even if they call us out a little bit, Father. I pray that we would be sensitive to what you're saying this morning. Father, put power on these words that you give me to speak. Move the preacher out of the way this morning so your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 26. This is the apostle Paul addressing the church. He's talking to church folks at Galatia. Uh, Verse 26 begins this way. For you all are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. That's an interesting word word picture. We have put on Christ like we're putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you all, all, excuse me, are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. The promise of blessing that God uh, promised Abraham now belong to all of us, children of God, regardless of whether we're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. That is really good news, right? And so as Paul is addressing the church at Galatia, he's reminding them of their what? New identity. Their new identity 
uh, now that they have come to place their hope in Jesus. And so Paul uses a, a, a phrase that is common in the New Testament, especially common in the, the letters that Paul wrote. He uses this phrase, in Christ. In Christ. Paul mentions that they had been baptized into Christ. And then when we talk about baptism around here, we say that that water is symbolic of a watery grave, right? When you go down under the waters, you are bare, you die to yourself, and when you are resurrected, hopefully they bring you up, right? You are, you are raised, risen to life, new life in Christ. You die to yourself, and you're raised to new life in Christ. That's what baptism symbolizes. And Paul says, hey, you've been baptized. Now you have the opportunity to what? Identify with him, leaving the old way, the natural way, that is governed by our sinfulness and our selfishness, our preference-driven desires, pressing into a new, more excellent, uh, more fulfilling, more godly way. But I might add, this way is more challenging. If it wasn't, we'd probably have more people doing it, right? Baptized, identify with Christ, leaving the old way behind, pressing into a new life, what? In Christ. In Christ, we receive the free gift of salvation. But what Paul is expressing here is that it's easy to forget that with salvation comes a measure of distinctiveness that we must maintain. A measure of distinctiveness or difference or otherness in comparison to the world that we must maintain. And oftentimes Christians so easily forget that we're supposed to be different. So easily forget about what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about being salt and light, the distinction between salt and light relative to darkness and flavorlessness is a distinctiveness, an otherness that we must maintain. The worst thing that somebody who's known you for a while can say is, oh, you go to church? <laughs> and some of you are like, you invited your friends to some, somebody you've known for years and they say, when did you start going to church? You're like, I've been going to church 30 years. What are they saying? Oh, I can't quite pick up your Christian accent. I can't quite pick up the distinctiveness that they perhaps have noticed in other Christians. That distinctiveness is what we talked about in the first week of this series in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be living and holy sacrifices, the kind he will find acceptable this is truly the only way to worship him. Verse 2, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by what? Changing the way you think, changing you from the inside. And what we talk about often here is Christ being formed within you, which moves you to a place of maturity, transformation, and growth. And with that transformation and growth, if you submit to the process, uh, uh, what happens is people uh, around you can see it. You are other, you are distinct, you are salt now, and you are light pressing in to the new. This distinctiveness, friends, come with the package. Now, let's apply that to our purpose. Let's that, apply that to this challenge, this call, this command to love other people. Paul is saying the distinctiveness that comes as Christ is being formed within you must be evident in the way you love. It must be evident in the way you love. Now, I told you earlier that it's easier to love people who are like you. 
But I think Paul is saying this love must expressly be evident in how you love, how you regard, how you honor people who are different from you. How you love people you don't like. How you love people you don't get, you don't understand. How do you love people who their very presence annoys you? That's the real measure of Christian love, friends. You don't get any points for loving your family. <laughs> You're supposed to do that, right? This distinctiveness. And so we come back to Galatians, right? We come back to first century, where really these words are really aimed at the people in the first century. They have deep meaning and significance to us. But I've read somewhere that Jewish men would greet each day uh, by praying to God out loud, Lord, thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Like, this is how they would pray to God. Lord, you really did me a solid by not making me a Gentile, uh, by not making me a slave, and by not making me a woman. Now, we can just sort of guess what they might think about these groups. You don't get this warm fuzzies about Gentiles or slaves or women. Like, you don't get the sense of honor and seeing them in the image and likeness of God of much worth and value. You, you, you sort of pick that up in this prayer. You don't. Which means that the prejudice toward these categories of people were strong, deep, and widely held. And I imagine the Gentile and that the slave, and that the woman would have their own separate prayer, thanking God for not making me like, just make your own list of the people you don't like that much. So imagine how Paul's words might cut against the grain of the culture. Imagine how Paul's words might be upsetting and break down some barriers and break down some walls and break down some deeply held beliefs as he speaks these words. His words would be controversial. His words would, would, would be unique and off-putting to the powerful, the Jewish person, but, but they would be attractive, comforting, welcoming to those who found themselves under the boot of life. The Gentile, the Samaritan, the slave, the person of low social standing, the woman. Their ears might perk up when they hear Paul says this because is there some place in God's kingdom for unity and equality and oneness? Is, is attractive to those of us who are low. But be mindful of your reaction to this if you happen to hold some social standing, some power, maybe because of your race, or maybe because of your social status, or maybe because of your gender, or maybe because of your wealth. Uh, be, be, be careful how you respond to these words, because they're true. And so I want to walk through this text and uh, discover three, th three ways that being in Christ kind of reframes and rewrites how we're supposed to love people, particularly those who are different. The goal, of course, in the kingdom of God is oneness, equality, and un unity. And you cannot have that if there's a hierarchy of people who are more important than people who are less important. Can't have unity and oneness. Can't have equality. And, and, and we say here all the time that all ground is level where? Beneath the cross of Christ. 
And so Paul's words are as true today as they were when he spoke to many years ago. Three ways. First, first way is that when it comes to race and ethnicity, we are called to love well across our differences. To love well across our differences, particularly when it comes to race and ethnicity. Paul calls it out by name almost. Verse 28, he says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. And here he's talking about ethnicity, ethnicity, the fact or state of belonging to a particular social group that has a common national or cultural tradition. So when you think of ethnicity, don't think so much skin color, think so much, think culture, right? Culture is what you do. Culture is what you like. Culture is like what we, what we enjoy, what we laugh at, what makes us move, our music, our food, right? We have cultural belongings, right? And Paul says, listen, there's no longer ethnicity. He says, no longer race, which refers to the major divisions of humankind having distinct physical characteristics. So race is a created, sort of man-made social construct that seeks to divide people because of what, you know, by what they look like. Right? And so... Paul says there is no longer Jew nor Gentile. Now, let me just clarify something. Paul is not saying that your ethnicity doesn't matter because your ethnicity does matter. You were created intentionally. There's no oops, you know, in here. There's no mistakes in here. You were created intentionally by God with purpose and design. So your ethnicity matters. Your race, your color, it it matters. And I just find it so frustrating, even well-intentioned people who just say, you know, Gino, I just, I don't see color at all. And I want to ask them, well, what do you do at a stoplight? (laughs) Now, that's the sarcastic part of me that wants to come out, but I understand that many people, when they say that, uh, they're well-meaning, they're well-intentioned, and what they're trying to say is, your race doesn't matter to me. And what I have found creative ways of saying is, my race should matter to you. I mean, God did a good job, but this, this is a nice chocolatey coat right here. And so, <laughs> to deny this, or, or to ignore this, or to downplay this so that we don't have to deal with it, it's not an option, right? Now, again, I'm not elevating chocolate over vanilla. If, you know, you should be... Th- you know, you should love your, you know, vanilla skin. I mean, that's who God made you. It's beautiful, right? And so Paul isn't saying, just be colorblind. But in, in, in a kingdom sense, when we consider our mission and what we're here to do, Paul understands that these are things that divide rather than unite. These are things because of our natural tendency to seek uh, significance in external things. Our natural leaning to try to find who's better and who's not. Our tendency is to use our differences to separate us. And once we're separated, we got to figure out who's better, who should rule, who should get the most, you know, you know, opportunities and all these sort of things. And Paul's like, hey, in the kingdom, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no ethnicity or race. The ground is level beneath the cross. 
It's helpful to understand that the Jewish people who themselves were strangers and foreigners and orphans, who themselves were mistreated and misused and under the boot of anybody who just had a whim to try to come and mess with them, you would think that those people would be sensitive to what it would mean to be on the bottom culturally, ethnically, in terms of social standing. You'd think they would be sensitive, but it's our human sinful nature to once we get out from under the boot, to find somebody to put up under our boot. It's our sinful, broken nature. We are all subject to it. And so in this context, the Jewish people had some getting over themselves to do. They had religious power, known as God's chosen people. But as the gospel begins to spread, these Jews needed to have a come-to-Jesus moment, and Paul is helping them to discover that there is no ethnicity, there is no race. They're forced to choose which God they will serve, the God that sees value in everybody and insists that we see value in everybody or the God uh, of you being on top in this particular cultural context. And we all have to figure out which God we will serve. If you're going to serve Yahweh, you got to get low. If, you, if you're going to serve Yahweh, as we said, week after week, you have to, as Paul says in Romans 12, outdo one another in serving honor. In other words, your relationship should be this contest. Who can honor each other the most? Who can get lower? It's kind of like, what's the, the contest where you have to get under the bar, the limbo thing? You, it's like, this is, how we, this is how it's supposed to look in the spirit. How can I honor you? How can I, how can I defer to you? How can I, how can I make it so that your life is easier? And guess what? In community and in families, when everybody's doing that, boy, that's a sweet thing. As opposed to our present reality, where everybody's trying to climb over each other. Paul says it must be different with you. And so you see all throughout the New Testament, if you have eyes to see it, that God is confronting racism, confronting prejudice wherever he sees it. My favorite instance of this is in Galatians chapter 2. Paul, I'm sorry, Peter, ministering to the Gentiles, hanging out with them. He's eating their food. He's eating ribs and all kinds of pulled pork sandwiches and everything. But then his homeboys come from Jerusalem to visit, and all of a sudden he can't sit with the Jews. All of a sudden he wants to reimpose some of the weight of the law that's already been lifted off of him. And Peter comes to visit. I'm sorry, Paul comes to visit. He sees Peter doing this, and he doesn't take... Peter aside and have a casual conversation with him. Paul's the leader of leaders. He knows that, hey, we praise in public. We, 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 we confront or critique in private. He saw Peter's hypocrisy, and he called him out in front of everybody. Yeah. Scripture tells us in Galatians chapter 2 that even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was being led astray because of Peter's hypocrisy. And Paul said, this is so egregious. This is so costly. This so cuts against the grain of our mission and who we are that I got to deal with this now. I got to deal with it publicly. I got to set this thing straight. And he calls Peter on it in front of everybody. Why? Because the mission is more important than our ethnicity and race. 
And that one of the surest signs that you understand your mission, you understand who God is, you understand who you are, you understand who others are, is that you love well in the face of difference, particularly the difference that measures itself by race and ethnicity. This is a big deal. And what was Paul saying to Peter? Peter, we, we tear down walls, we don't build them. The gospel, as we said, is a sledgehammer that breaks through walls. We do not build walls. Get your act together, son. And he's using all of his apostolic weight and authority to drive that home. As I stand here today and use every ounce of pastoral weight and authority and say, as it concerns us, there is no longer Jew or Greek at the SSV. Understanding, of course, that our ethnicity and race is important. In the kingdom sense, it gets problematic. Paul doesn't stop there. He presses on, and he deals with the issue of our social status. Social status. Ethnicity and race in general is tied to our social status, right? Especially here in the West. Paul says in verse 28, there's no longer Jew or Gentile. But he also says there is no longer what? Slave or free. And in the ancient world, the, the ancient world was no, no stranger to slavery, right? Whether that be, you know, indentured servitude or the type of slavery that was common uh, with the African uh, slave trade, like people owning people. What he's really talking about is, is social status. There's a huge gap between the social standing of a free person and a slave. And so I think what Paul is pointing to, generally speaking, is uh, just as we blow up the complications that culture and race have in a community of people trying to learn to love one another, we're going to blow up this huge gap that exists between those that have and those that have not. There is no longer slave or free. There's plenty of instruction in the scriptures as to how to regard the poor. Loads of instruction in the scripture as to how to to take care of the orphan and how to take care of the widow and how to show compassionate regard for the immigrant. And some of us have lost our minds, right? Some of us have functionally ripped dozens of pages out of scripture as we bow to the God of our politics as we bow to the God of nationalism, and and I want to know today who's on the Lord's side. Because if you're on the Lord's side, then you've got to live by his book, especially when it gets hard to do so. He says there is no longer slave or free. And in passages like this, particularly this one, God seems to lean toward those who are on the bottom, right? Leaning toward those who are powerless, leaning toward those who are voiceless, even in the church, even in the church, especially in the church. Why? Because God knows that there's this intense internal struggle to find significance, intense internal struggle to find self-esteem, and nothing makes you feel better than finding somebody who's worse than you. Now, we wouldn't say that. 
We're too, we're too Christian. We're too sanctified to say that. But nothing makes you feel better. That's why we watch reality TV. <laughs> it's entertaining, right? But you were feeling like a hot mess before you watched that show, and you thought, you know what? At least. <laughs> At least I'm not like that, right? You feel a little better about yourself. That's that internal sense of let me find somebody less than me. Let me find somebody who I'm more better off than. Like, let me find, like, again, you would never say that. And you're tempted to call me a liar in your heart, but, but deep down, the spirit of truth helps that, that thing ring true in your heart. You go, yep. When I am in this quiet yet constant search to find somebody who's lower than me, I'm identifying large groups of people who are all of a sudden unworthy of the honor that we're supposed to lead with. What I don't fully see is made in the image of God, of much worth and value. People who are all of a sudden worthy of less dignity and less respect. And in that sense, in a kingdom sense, in a missional sense, they become less eligible to receive God's kingdom light and love through you as we go to what? All the world to make disciples. So this is a bigger deal than we thought. I love how Paul's not wasting a lot of time talking about uh, the, 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 the fine details of this. He's targeting our hearts. He's raising awareness. He's trying to help us see that there's something broken on the inside. There's something uh, that needs to be fixed that only truth can fix. He's saying when it comes to your social status, we're called to love well across the differences. Consider the missional impact of internalizing this truth that in God's kingdom, social standing does not matter. Paul's not done. He presses to a third and final category that, that, that is, is really pressing for us right now in, in the West, super pressing for us, especially in the church in light of all sorts of scandals and the Me Too movement. He talks about gender. He talks about gender. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, no longer slave or free, no longer male or female, and I'll say it because I said it last time, it's not saying that God uh, doesn't uh, have an appreciation for whether or not we're male or female. He created us that way. Functionally so. In terms of our missional and pur- mission and purpose, in terms of how family dynamics and how we're supposed to contribute to the larger society, it matters whether or not you're male or female. That's like really important to God. But Whenever we use it as a measuring stick for who is valuable and who's not, or who's more valuable and who's less valuable, the Lord says, hey, let me remind you, in my kingdom, beneath the cross of Christ, all ground is level. There is no male nor female. And this is huge. This is huge. This is the elephant in the room of many organizations these days, of many churches, as scandals are plentiful of powerful men using their power and using their influence to abuse women sexually, to gain advantages, 
And let me just say unequivocally that God hates that. God is, his heart breaks by that. He doesn't take a casual look at that, and somebody's going to stand before God and give an account for how we handled his daughters. I don't care how big your church is. I don't care how many followers you have on Twitter. You're going to have to stand before God and give an account for how you've handled his daughters. And then you watch, just turn on the news, just go on Facebook, just go on Twitter. Big scandals cooking. We were just at a conference this week uh, at the GLS conference, Global Leadership Conference, Willow Creek. Many of you know what's playing out there. And it's just disgusting. I don't say that to hop on the bandwagon of people who are you know, waiting in line to do harm to, to Bill Hybels. I just say this is a kingdom reality. This, this, this is, this is, that's, not, that's not okay. And let me just say, while we're on the record, you know, we honor women in this church. And from the top to the bottom, anybody found to do otherwise, we're going to deal with it. Myself included. Our church council has a full authority and the green light to deal with anybody, including me, who violates this because it matters. It matters to God. And so if you are here now, future, in any path, if somebody has uh, tried to uh, coerce you or to abuse you or to harass you in any way, I don't care who it is, tell somebody. We will deal with it. Because this matters. This is especially important as you move past harassment and abuse. Especially important in the church context because women have uh, been second class for the, for the longest time in the church. And that's just, that's just dumb to me. That's just dumb to me. I know women who could preach me under the table and minister and prophesy. Like, why would we, like, cripple that gift to the body? Why would we do that? I got friends who I love dearly. They think differently about this. And at the, at the root of all of their disbelief in dispatching women to minister and to have equal standing in church is this one passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach or, uh, men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. Now, some of you women, you, you, you know, you have to restrain yourself. Start praying the spirit because this. <laughs> but it's right there in scripture, right? But I, this is where context matters. This is where having to really understand the cultural context of the day. What was happening at the time where Paul had to say this to Timothy? Well, without doing a whole sermon on this, I think it's helpful to understand that there was an amazing liberation of women happening in the Roman world at that particular time. Women had been previously prohibited to, be, uh, to learn and to teach, and so those, those, those chains were being thrown off, uh, which now permitted women to learn uh, as teachable members in the church, right? People, women particularly were not allowed to study, uh, but this amazing freedom 
uh, for women who had come to Christ had begun to become corrupted because, unfortunately, because they hadn't had ter- a time to learn and study, they didn't really know what they were talking about, right? And so with this liberation came this zeal and zest for teaching, but they hadn't submitted themselves yet to learning. And one of the, big, the biggest things that Paul talks about and that he pushes back against in his letters is false teaching. It's incorrect teaching, right? So Paul doesn't have something against women teaching so much as he has against false teaching. Immature understandings, underdeveloped understandings of the gospel, and therefore leading these young, fledgling churches with these new believers astray. And so it's in this context that Paul says, women, you need to be silent. You need to learn before you can teach, right? It's helpful to understand all the scriptures and all the stories and all the references in scripture that you have to climb over to come to the conclusion that women should be silent in the church. You'd have to ignore prophets and judges and women who minister with power and sat at the feet of Jesus and did mighty work. You'd have to ignore all of that and come to this tiny strip, significant but tiny, often misunderstood, often uh, uh, misapplied passage of Scripture. You'd have to climb over and ignore a whole lot to conclude that God doesn't want women to flow freely in their gifts, to preach and to teach and to prophesy and bring their unique perspective into teaching leadership positions in the body of Christ. You'd have to ignore a whole lot. And I'm just going to say, in case anybody's confused about it, we affirm women in the vineyard. You might not like it here, if you got a deep theological rub with that. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to search the scriptures with you. And I don't mean that sarcastically because I know a lot of people, and I think it's fair to say, I know a lot of people who this isn't something they have against women. They believe that they're showing fidelity to the scriptures and adhering to this. And so it is a respectable, erroneous, I believe, but it's a respectable biblical position to hold. I can see how people might come to this, but I just, I I think that it takes a deeper dive into the scriptures. So I don't mean to demonize people who have a different theological perspective. I'm I'm just the head steward of what happens here. And who we affirm and who we bless, yeah. And so if you're a woman in this church and you feel uh, an aspiration toward leadership, an aspiration toward uh, preaching and teaching and, you know, flowing in the gifts and leadership, listen, hey, you are in, you are in the right place. I'm going to bless you to pursue your gifts and callings and bless our community with those things. Now, we, we have a commitment to orthodoxy and like, like, theological, a healthy theological understanding and, and a commitment to like having a we versus me sort of deal here. But like we want to empower you because we believe that Jesus empowers you uh, because Paul says in the context of the kingdom, there is no male or female, that all ground is level as it relates to gender in God's kingdom. So as we look at the big picture of this, I'm struck by how little detail Paul gives us as to actually have, actually work this out. And actually walk this out, I'm like, this, it seems suspicious that it's absent, right? 
But I think what Paul is trying to help us understand better than just the nuts and bolts and how you do that, he's trying to help us see people differently. Trying to help us see people differently. Because how I treat you starts with how I see you. And if I see you as a problem, I'm going to treat you like a problem. If I see you as inferior, I'm going to treat you as inferior. If I see you as a person that's not deserving of honor and, 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 and dignity and respect, guess what? I'm going to treat you as such. And so what Paul is basically saying is, I don't have to give you the nuts and bolts about how to love people with differences. All I want you to do is love the people who are different like you love the people who aren't different. I tell you how to honor somebody who you like and who you respect. Paul is just saying, give that same measure of honor and respect and dignity to the person who you wouldn't naturally respect. Now, there's plenty of biblical wisdom that teaches us and instructs us on the nuts and bolts, but many of us don't have, you know, we don't, it's not that we don't know how to love. We have a vision problem. We don't know how to see. We don't know how to see the Gentile as our brother. We don't know how to see the black person or the Latino person or the Filipino person or the Asian person or the First Nation person. Like, we don't know how to see them. And, like, the same feelings that we, we get when we see our people, like, that instinctively wells. We, don't, we, don't, we have a vision problem, see? If you're rich, you don't, you don't know how to see the poor man and go, that man is my brother. She's my sister. But you do know how you relate to people of the same social standing who get what you get, they've been educated like you, right? And so the charge to us is to see this guy like we see that guy. We don't have a problem showing respect and honor to other men. My man, okay, I get, we get each other challenge is, how do we have that same level of respect and honor when we see a woman? That's the hard part. Ethnicity, race, social status, gender. Worship team, you can come on. Paul, he tackles all those, but you know, there are more demographic lines that are drawn in the sand. Like, what would you add to this list? You'd certainly add, particularly in this political climate, you'd add politics. You'd add Democratic and Republican. You'd, you, you, you could not have this conversation with talk, without talking about the reality of our current sitting president. You could not have this conversation without talking about President Trump and those that support him and those that agree with him and those that don't. What about generational? Millennials and their skinny pants and the older group. Like, we, we have our generational preferences, don't we? Like, we can't have this conversation if we talk about generations. All the way down to whether you're a Bears fan or whether you are a lowly Packers fan. Like, we still have to... <laughs> I'm sorry, Judy. Well, you could come here if you're a Packers fan. Like, you got to sit in the back. No, but like, right? Paul is saying, like, we got, we got, we have a, we have a vision problem. 
And all ground is level beneath the cross of Christ. Now, we're not going to get this all fixed in one sermon. I'm not that good a preacher. Uh, but this is righteous truth presented, Holy Ghost mirror set in front of you, and I now turn you over to God's Spirit so that you can wrestle with that and do an honest assessment. Because, listen, this is who we are. This is who we are. This is what the world needs. They need more multi-ethnic churches like this. They need more diverse churches. And this isn't just a club for misfits and, you know, odd pieces that some kind of hang out together. This is a training ground, what we call it Love University, that you are trained in the context of community how to see and appreciate differences so that when you go to work, so that when you go to school, so that when you're in the marketplace, you've already cultivated a value for difference and you can go to anybody anywhere and see them made in the image and likeness of God of much worth and value, worthy of the gospel so that God can do a work in their life. That's what this is. May it grow and flourish. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this deep conviction that we have to press into deeper and deeper places of honor and respect for the other. It's in our DNA. It's who we are. And so, Father, we pray that we would just continue to experience that picture of heavenly diversity that we see in, Rome, in Revelation 7. Oh, every tongue, every tribe and nation that we would experience the inbreaking of the kingdom. And that would be the, one of the realities of it, that we would be uh, engaging in diverse relationships here and now. Father, would you teach us? Father, where there are pockets of prejudice and racism and bigotry, whether it's toward race and ethnicity, social class, gender or anything else, Father, may it be broken over us today. Come Holy Spirit. Do what only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.